Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Water, water everywhere, drowning the habitat of the polar bear and giving the great white beast a new role. The polar bear is becoming the symbol for what is wrong with global warming. And the Arctic ecosystem of which the polar bear is a part is suffering the impacts of global warming first. But I hope it becomes uh, the symbol of what can be done. Also, Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney says what should be done is win energy independence for America. And that might mean drilling in the far north. We use too much foreign oil. We send about a billion dollars a day now out of our country to go buy oil from other people. That billion a day could be invested here. Presidential hopeful Mitt Romney. Also, we have some thoughts on wildcats and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As the habitat of the polar bear disappears with Arctic sea ice, this great beast has become an icon of the consequences of global warming. And though the polar bear may be in danger, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recently missed a deadline to decide whether the polar bear needs the protection of the Endangered Species Act. The agency says it needs another month to consider research from the U.S. Geological Survey on polar bears and sea ice, as well as a flood of public comments in support of the listing. That delay has prompted environmental groups to start legal action to force the government to make a decision. Joining me now is Bill Snape. He's senior counsel with the Center for Biological Diversity. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hello. So, as I understand it, your organization has filed a notice of intent to sue. That is correct. We think the delay is bogus, to say the least. Bogus? That's a strong word. Well, this is an agency that has had uh, well over a year to take a look at their own listing proposal. The original petition to list the polar bear was submitted in 2005, and the report upon which they are relying now and claiming that it is late was submitted to them in September. So we think uh, waiting even a month for this species is too long as its habitat does continue to melt. And I think perhaps most importantly, you must look at this delay in the overall context of the Bush Interior Department's Endangered Species Act record. This is an agency that has not listed any species in over one year and one half. So the polar bear delay must be viewed in that context and it, it frankly makes us very suspicious. Now, the Minerals Management Service of the Interior Department has announced that it'll hold a sale on oil and gas leases in the Chukchi Sea. That's an area within polar bear habitat within the next few weeks. And that's before the Fish and Wildlife Service will make a decision on listing the polar bear. To what extent did that affect your decision to file this notice of intent to sue now? It has a lot to do with it. And in fact, it heightens our suspicions. Uh, To put the Chukchi Sea lease into context, this is almost 30 million acres of oil sales, lease, and exploration that the Interior Department has 
uh, okayed already. It's going to disturb polar bear habitat directly, and it's going to contribute to the very global warming that is literally melting the polar bear habitat away. So the fact that, on the one hand, you've got a polar bear decision that is late under the Endangered Species Act, and on the other hand, they managed to get the lease sale done quite on time, in fact, early. When you add that up, it's the same old Bush administration, the same old anti-environmental policies, and that spells bad news for the polar bear. Now, we spoke with Valerie Fellows. She's a spokesperson for the Fish and Wildlife Service, and she told us that uh, the polar bears will have plenty of protections even if the leases are used for oil and gas drilling. Let's hear her now. With or without an endangered species listing, MMS will still have to comply with a NEPA analysis, a National Environmental Policy Act analysis, and comply with the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which already protects polar bears. So she's saying that the Department of Interior uh, must comply with the Marine Mammals Act, which already protects polar bears, ESA listing or not. What's your response? Well, as a lawyer, my response is twofold. Uh, Under the National Environmental Policy Act, one of the two statutes that she mentioned, you must remember that that is a procedural statute. As long as the agency analysis is honest and forthright, you can say we're going to destroy the habitat, put it in an environmental impact statement, and that's the end of the ballgame under NEPA. Uh, So NEPA is not the answer to protect the polar bear here. Uh, The Marine Mammal Protection Act does offer some modicum of protection to the polar bear, but it pales in comparison to what the Endangered Species Act does. So really that uh, that is a weak answer at its very best. Sarah Palin is the governor of Alaska, and she opposes listing polar bears as endangered, saying that the Endangered Species Act is not the correct tool to address climate change. How do you respond to that? Well, the Endangered Species Act is a tool in the kit to protect the polar bear and to deal with global warming. It is absolutely not the only tool. Uh, I don't see Governor Palin out in front leading the charge for Congress to pass emissions controls, which obviously would uh, help global warming. Uh, And so to the the extent that uh, imperiled species are declining because of global warming, the Endangered Species Act is is a solution. My prediction is eventually the Bush administration or a a subsequent administration is going to have to list the polar bear. The science is just overwhelming. Uh, And I sort of predict that not all oil and gas leases are going to stop the next day. So uh, again, to repeat, the Endangered Species Act is one of many tools to deal with global warming. It is not the only tool. And we would love to see Governor Palin. We'd love to see Secretary Kempthorne. We'd like to see the President of the United States endorsing some legislation to deal with global warming head on. That would be great news. If you are successful, would one end up saying that the polar bear would be much like the spotted owl, um, the little bird that stood up to prevent the clear cutting of the Northwest forests? Yes, the polar bear is becoming a symbol for what is happening as a result of global warming. And the Arctic ecosystem of which the polar bear is a part is suffering the impacts of global warming first, quite early. Science is very clear on that. And I have two young boys. I am fearful, based on the science I have read, that polar bears will not be seen in the wild when they are my age. And and that is, to me, a truly frightening thought. So yes, the polar bear is becoming the symbol for what is wrong with global warming, but I hope it becomes uh, the symbol of what can be done. Bill Snape is senior counsel for the Center for Biological Diversity. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. We stick with the legal issues for this next story. 
It's now the law that industries outside the United States whose emissions flow or drift into the U.S. can be held liable for the damage they cause. The Supreme Court has let stand an appeals court ruling to that effect. And Indian tribes in Washington state now hope that brings them one step closer to a massive cleanup of the Columbia River near the Canadian border. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports. Where the Columbia River enters the United States, radio stations play country and western, and the ads are for outdoor gear and ammunition. Big Belly Mountains rise and then ebb into valleys. The biggest valley of all belongs to the Columbia River, and on the reservation side of the river, a Colville Tribe environmental official named Patty Bailey picks red willow shoots from the Blackish Riverbank. Uh, this is uh, a tribal campground on the Colville Reservation. It's an area used for thousands of years by tribal members as hunting and fishing area. Now I come here to collect red willow. She holds the willow stem in her teeth and strips the core with a knife. I'm a basket weaver. Um, in my adult life, I uh, learned how to weave baskets. We're trying to keep that tradition alive. It's not uncommon for people to put materials in their mouth and hold it there while they're weaving. This is relevant because the black sand on many of the river beaches here isn't natural. It's made up of slag, a metal and glassy waste deposited by the hundreds of thousands of tons by the Tecumseh lead and zinc smelter a few miles upriver in Canada. Most of the discharges stopped more than a decade ago, but the Colville and Spokane tribes here have been trying for years to find out the ecological and human health risks of the material. Don Hurst is a geologist and toxic cleanup manager with the tribes. What we're looking at here is about 73% slag that is sourced from the Tecumseh smelter. Contaminants of concern are like lead, arsenic, zinc, copper. The concentrations of arsenic and lead are at about the same levels that have driven emergency cleanups in other locations. You know, there's all kinds of animals that use this area. There's raccoons and river otters, deer, bear, and uh, lots of animals that the tribes do consume. Dissatisfied with the federal government's pursuit of the company to pay for studies and cleanup, the tribes sued under a special citizen provision of the Superfund law. That led to a major battle over jurisdiction. Tecumseh argued that as a facility in Canada, it could not be held accountable under U.S. Superfund law. Powerful trade organizations from the National Mining Association to the U.S. and Canadian Chambers of Commerce sided with the company. Now their worries have been confirmed. The Supreme Court has let stand a Ninth Circuit ruling that the metals giant Tech Cominco can be sued in U.S. courts using Superfund law. Dave Godlewski, Vice President for Environmental and Public Affairs for Tech Cominco American, says that's a big deal. Well, I think that the implications are really far-reaching. They extend to border countries, certainly Mexico and Canada, but uh, I guess could be applied uh, universally. One of our attorneys brought up the potential for uh, island nations in Polynesia to sue the United States because of greenhouse gas emissions. It really opens an interesting door to the prosecution of cases that involve transnational transmission of pollutants. 
Godlewski says it's most important to realize that just because the company fought U.S. jurisdiction doesn't mean it won't clean up its legacy along the Columbia River. That's a message that's often lost in, in all the rhetoric around this, that we've made a commitment to do what's, what is the right thing here, to take our responsibilities very seriously. And I think that's the message I'd like to leave with your listeners, that, that this isn't the case of a, of a recalcitrant polluter. This is someone who is taking responsibility for its actions, but felt that it was necessary to defend itself with regard to these larger jurisdictional issues. But the long fight has made some tribal leaders wary. Again, Patty Bailey. They've sat on our watershed boards. They've sat across the table from us and talked to us about them cleaning up their industry in Canada, and, and, and that's been wonderful. But they've had decades to do the right thing down here, and they haven't done it, and they won't do it until they're made to do it. First, the facts and history of Tech Cominco's legacy will probably have to be argued in federal court in Washington state. But in the meantime, there is progress in answering the tribe's health and wildlife concerns. The metals company is working with EPA on the large job of gathering data and gauging risk. Some earlier tests indicate possible problems for wildlife. Mark Stifelman, an EPA toxicologist, says one example is the bottom-dwelling fish known as suckers. One of the things we found is that the suckers we sampled in the upper reaches of the river, um, their guts were literally filled with slag. And we're actually having to um, adjust our um, analytical procedures for the fish was to such a degree that we're actually having to dissect the entire gastrointestinal tract out of these suckers and separate it from the rest of the fish tissue because it has such a, a large mass of slag. Neither the health or liability questions on the Upper Columbia are settled, but the case has now made law that could be felt elsewhere where pollution heedless crosses borders. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet. Just ahead, presidential hopeful Mitt Romney and the environment. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Throughout the presidential campaign, Living on Earth has been examining the energy and global warming policies of the candidates. Today, we turn to Republican and former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney. Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman went on the campaign trail with Governor Romney during the recent New Hampshire primary and has this report. By his own count, Mitt Romney made hundreds of campaign appearances in New Hampshire. Most were of the meet and greet variety, like this one at Norton's Classic Restaurant in Nashua, where you can sit in a blue and pink booth fashioned out of a 1950s T-bird. With reporters and photographers in tow, Romney makes the rounds. Well, there are a couple things. One is, my view is that families ought to be able to save their money tax-free. At this stop, just two people were interested in talking about the environment. Eight-year-old Nick Gage and his dad, Kevin. Nick just finished a school report on global warming. Well, I learned that if we don't save the polar bears and, like, put them in a colder place, they'll probably die off. So how important is global warming for you? I think global warming is an important issue. It's not number one on my list. We actually just bought a car, but we couldn't afford to get into a hybrid, which was really kind of stinky. But it, it, with kids, I mean, we couldn't do the, the Prius because, it's, you know, you, you couldn't do it. 
Likewise, for Mitt Romney, global warming isn't so much an environmental issue as an economic and national security issue. Here he's answering a question at one of his Ask Mitt Anything meetings in Hudson, New Hampshire. I believe the planet's getting warmer, and I believe that human activity is contributing to the planet getting warmer. I'm not a scientist, so I don't know how much is human and how much is due to other cyclical factors we don't understand. I, I just don't know. But I do know this. We can reduce the impact of human activity by reducing our emissions of greenhouse gases. And the best way I know to do that is to put us on a track to become energy independent of foreign oil. Because getting us to do that would mean less use of oil and more use of liquefied coal where you sequester the CO2, nuclear, solar, wind power, biodiesel, biofuel, ethanol, cellulosic ethanol, and more efficient vehicles and homes and businesses. You do those things, our greenhouse gas emissions come down a lot. Romney calls his position on climate change his no-regrets policy. He says whether or not human activity is contributing to climate change by becoming energy independent will save money and bolster national security. We use too much foreign oil. We send about a billion dollars a day now out of our country to go buy oil from other people. That billion a day could be invested here, but instead it's going out there to Ahmadinejad and Chavez and Putin and others, some of whom use it against us. Romney supports drilling for oil in Anwar, the Alaska National Wildlife Reserve, and in offshore coastal waters, but not near Florida. And he opposes the Kyoto Climate Accord because it doesn't require developing countries to cap their climate-changing emissions. Romney is for improving the efficiency of automobiles, but opposes mandates requiring car makers to increase gas mileage. He wants to recycle nuclear waste, but is waiting for the latest scientific studies before taking a position on the controversial Yucca Mountain nuclear waste site in Nevada. Energy independence is Romney's highest domestic economic priority. So he's proposing a program on the size and scale of the Apollo Moon Project. Here he is in the last New Hampshire debate from ABC News, Facebook, and WMUR-TV. This is not something that's going to get solved in 10 years. We can't become energy independent in 10 years, but we can get ourselves on a track to do that. It's going to require a far more substantial investment by our nation in energy technology. Right now, we spend about $4 billion a year on new sources of energy and energy efficiency. We're going to have to increase that dramatically. On the campaign trail, Romney is a consummate politician, hand outstretched, sporting a smile with a quick wit and a ready quip. He's fond of quoting Yogi Berra. Have a good breakfast. It's a little crowded in here now. now. I'm told. And what is it? What is it? Yogi Berra said, which is, he said the place is so crowded, no one goes there anymore. Remember that? If Yogi Berra were a reporter trying to learn about Romney's environmental record, he might say. You can learn a lot about history by studying the past. So I found people familiar with Mitt Romney's environmental record when he was governor of Massachusetts. Sonia Hamill worked as a senior official in various state environmental offices for 25 years under seven governors. Actually, Governor Romney's a wonderful manager. He was a very metrics-oriented manager, and I think he, uh, he was good at that. Romney managed the governor's office like the businessman he was and won praise from environmentalists for filing first-in-the-nation legislation to protect coastal waters. He signed a bill phasing out mercury in consumer products and brokered a deal to clean up the state's dirtiest power plants. Romney even weather-stripped the windows in his home, saving $128 a year on his heating bill. 
but he got the highest praise for creating a new cabinet position overseeing energy, transportation, housing, and the environment, and appointing the president of the Conservation Law Foundation, an ardent environmental advocate, as its head. The move pleased George Backrack, president of the Environmental League of Massachusetts and a former Democratic state senator. I think many of us in the state when Mitt, were, were excited by Mitt Romney. We may not have agreed with him on issues. We may not, he may not have been our, our, you know, our, our cup of tea in, uh, in many ways, but we were impressed by uh, a degree of intellect, um, entrepreneurial spirit, reform-minded, fresh set of eyes. And I think many of us were greatly disappointed when he became uh, something else. Critics say the transformation of Mitt Romney took a few years. Romney, who said he supported wind power, joined forces with opponents, including Ted Kennedy, against a wind project off Cape Cod. He cut the state's environmental budget and spending on parks and land preservation. Then, three years into his term, he stunned environmentalists when he pulled Massachusetts out of an historic pact of Northeast states called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or REGI. A first of its kind in the nation, it was the brainchild of New York Republican Governor George Pataki, designed as a market-driven system to control CO2 emissions from businesses. Sonia Hamill was Massachusetts' chief architect of REGGIE. In my 25 years of doing program development in state government, I never had been involved in a project that was as well analyzed and as well modeled as REGGIE. Um, we spent three years designing it and uh, had a great deal of certainty that price increases would be extremely modest, probably on the order of 2 or 3 percent, and that actually if we did good work on energy efficiency, we could reduce that to having no price increase. Romney had wholeheartedly supported the regional curb on greenhouse gases. In November of 2005, he said, quote, This is a great thing for the Commonwealth. I'm convinced it's good for business. Then suddenly, just a month later, on the same day he announced he wasn't seeking re-election, Governor Romney said he was withdrawing from Reggie. Here's Romney explaining his change of heart on New Hampshire Public Radio's program, The Exchange. I had literally one of our largest employers tell me they would not build another facility in our state if we signed the bill as it was without a cap. And so I insisted that the other parties put a cap in. The other states would not. And I said, very simple, if the other states are gonna, not going to allow us to have a cap, I can't sign it. Again, Sonia Hamill, the Massachusetts official who negotiated the Greenhouse Agreement. I was personally really surprised and disappointed because we had done our homework on that program and it was designed very cautiously. So, yes, it was, it was a terrible disappointment to me. So what happened? What changed? I can't tell you exactly. I wish I could look into the mind of Governor Romney uh, when he was making these decisions, but he faltered in terms of making the decision. I think that he, um, he listened a lot to scare tactics. I don't know. The upcoming Michigan primary could be the make-or-break vote for Mitt Romney. The role his environmental record and platform will play won't be known till the votes are analyzed. Or as Yogi Berra would say, it ain't over till it's over. For Living on Earth, I'm Bruce Kellerman. The U.S. Department of Energy is mapping out potential paths to bring power to the people.
Officials say these national interest electricity corridors will speed construction of power lines needed to meet the increasing demands of energy-hungry Americans and avoid the threat of blackouts. But some landowners and conservationists don't like the prospect of massive pylons and cables lumbering across the landscape. They say the power line plan would mar scenic vistas and put the country on a path to more global warming. Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports. John Howard looks out on the fields and forests where he works, a place that once saw the single bloodiest day of combat in U.S. history. The leaves are off the trees. You know, we're looking out over split rail fences and stone walls and towards Antietam Creek, towards, uh, you know, over some of the most historic and hallowed ground in the United States. 23,000 were killed or wounded here at Antietam in Maryland. As superintendent of the National Park, it's Howard's job to keep the Civil War battlefield and its surroundings intact. He's had help from the state, which spent millions to protect the sweeping view of old farmlands and the forested ridge of nearby South Mountain. Howard says that vista helps visitors connect to their history. It's a special place. And one of the reasons it's special is because of the fact of of what they're looking at now is the same thing that 145 years ago some young private from Maine or Georgia was looking at exactly the same thing they're looking at and wondering whether they were going to live through the day. It's an ability to personalize, and and, uh, uh, it's a lot easier to do when you're looking at something that was actually there. Those 19th century soldiers did not look up at high-voltage power lines, but Howard fears his visitors might. The Allegheny Power Company wants to get more of its electricity to the Washington and Baltimore areas with a power line through Maryland, and preliminary route maps place it close to Antietam. Howard says that could mean a treeless swath of giant metal towers dominating the view of South Mountain, near where Union and Confederate troops clashed in early skirmishes. Well, I think the the impact is going to be pretty devastating. Um, That dirt there is is the dirt that these soldiers fought on and bled on and died on. And the idea that it's not a little bit more important than uh, power line, I think if we get to that point, we've lost a lot. It's just one of a half dozen power line battles brewing in the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast. Electric utilities want to link their big power plants in the Ohio River Valley to eastern seaboard cities. And natural, historic, and scenic areas are often in the path. State regulators usually handle disputes like this, but this time the federal government might step in. In its 2005 Energy Act, Congress told the Department of Energy to find areas of electricity congestion. That's where transmission lines can't deliver all the generated power to consumers. The Energy Department's Kevin Kolovar says those areas are now national interest electricity transmission corridors. There needs to be a national perspective a national interest that is brought to bear when you're considering whether or not we are going to have the electric infrastructure necessary to bring power to our populations. If states in those corridors fail to approve a power line, the federal government could push for it, even using eminent domain to take property if needed. That has sparked angry protest from governors and attorneys general who say state rights are being trampled. Pennsylvania Democratic Senator Bob Casey complains the Energy Department gave Pennsylvania residents little notice that the designation was coming. I mean, to designate a corridor through 52 counties and have one meeting is uh, beyond obnoxious. The Energy Department's Mid-Atlantic Corridor designation covers seven states from upstate New York through Virginia, 
Another corridor for the southwest includes California and Arizona. Now a coalition of two dozen environmental groups is suing the Energy Department to stop those designations. Cale Jaffe with the Southern Environmental Law Center says what worries him is not just what's in the path of the power corridors, but what's at the ends of them. The lines would link to coal-rich regions where it's easier to get permits for a power plant. The utility companies are seeking to build power plants where they think the environmental rules are most weak. It's literally an example of running away from our nation's most progressive environmental protections. Jaffe says the power lines would encourage new coal power plants, and that would mean decades of more heat-trapping greenhouse gas emissions. The legal challenge from his group and others says the government failed to consider other ways to meet power demand, like energy efficiency programs. Some studies show efficiency could reduce projected electricity demand in the mid-Atlantic by as much as a third. But the Energy Department's Kevin Colivar says while the department supports efficiency, new power lines would still be needed to avoid the threat of blackouts. Efficiency is not in the calculation, nor should it be in this calculation. This is what it is. This focuses on the ability to have the federal government look at new transmission if there's a national interest. Now it's up to the federal courts to untangle this power struggle over power lines. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Antietam, Maryland. Tata Motors, a car company in India, has just unveiled its newest auto. It's a four-door hatchback that will sell for about $2,500, perhaps the cheapest car in the world. And that means that millions of consumers in developing countries who currently rely on motorbikes or buses or their feet will be able to achieve that dream of middle-class life and buy a car. Some commentators are welcoming this new people's car as a sign of India's progress and as a safer alternative than overcrowded buses or overloaded motorbikes. Others see a cause for worry, more smog at home, and more greenhouse emissions. Sunita Narain, director of the Center for Science and the Environment, spoke on the phone from her office in Delhi, India. She says India needs to radically improve its public transportation rather than boost the number of cars clogging the roads. The numbers of people who travel in the bus are much larger than the numbers of people who travel by motorbike or by car. Cars actually in my city travels only 20% of the people or less, but it occupies 90% of the road space. And that's what we want to reverse. That's what we want to change. Uh, How do you get to work and do your own shopping? I go to work in a car because the buses are lousy in India, in Delhi. But I would love to travel by bus or bicycle. It's too dangerous by bicycle, though. But I hope it will become safer. Delhi is actually now beginning to invest in bicycle lanes, and we are beginning to have our first high-capacity bus corridor. So it's a question of really how Indians will reinvent mobility and whether we in India have the confidence to be able to do what the rest of the world has not done. So that is the question then. Um, To what extent is India prepared to leapfrog the rest of the world, to not have snarled expressways and highways and traffic mostly at a standstill? I mean, here in the Boston area, I think they say that 100 years ago, the average speed through town was uh, a little bit faster using a horse than it is bumper to bumper (laughs) using a car. Um, So how prepared is India to leapfrog the uh, American and uh, European experience? 
That's a zillion-dollar question. That's the fight we have in our own country. And I, and I think there is an understanding that perhaps we don't have to make the mistakes of the rest of the world. We are trying to say that the public objective of mobility is much greater than the private objective of making money if you own a car company. As the number of cars go up on the road there in India, one would think that there would be more pollution and less regulations are, are tightened. What's the outlook for air quality with these cheap cars coming on the market? Well, I think that's really the issue. It's not, you know, the numbers of vehicles increase, the pollution will obviously grow. The question will become how fast can tighter regulations come in, which will mandate cleaner fuel and cleaner technology. We are demanding from government that these technologies, cleaner technologies and cleaner fuel kick in as fast as possible. And the government says that it will happen in 2010. I think that's the big issue for us because already Indian cities are really um, very polluted and clearly we need a different alternative. Sunita Narain is director of the Center for Science and the Environment in Delhi, India. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Take care. Coming up, inventor Ray Kurzweil, pioneer of talking machines for the blind. And you are listening to Living on Earth from Public Radio International. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If you think that computers and machines have taken over your life, just wait. Ray Kurzweil says soon we'll be married, literally. Ray Kurzweil is one of the foremost inventors of our age, and he says the fusion of man and machine is imminent. He calls it the singularity. Raymond has invented many things, like that reading machine for the blind. Oh, and me. That's Ramona, an example of AI, artificial intelligence, and the hostess of Ray's website. We joined him in his Kurzweil Technologies office outside of Boston to talk about his theories and predictions and meet some of his brain children. Ray Kurzweil invented the first text-to-speech reader for the blind back in 1976. It was the size of a small washing machine, and the sound technology was still in its infancy. Scanner moving to top of page. Four and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. One current project is another nifty device, a prototype translating telephone. The rain in Spain, comma. La pluie en Espagne. Stays mainly in the plain, period. Reste dans la plaine principalement. Perhaps the most familiar invention to bear the Kurzweil name is the synthesizer that's capable of recreating virtually all the orchestral instruments. In fact, all the music you hear in this story was created using the Kurzweil 250. What excites Ray Kurzweil most is what he sees over the horizon now. 
what he calls the singularity. And what does he mean by that? Well, primarily refers to our merging with our technology and, and, and greatly expanding our human potential. Literally, the word refers to a profound transformation. And here we're using it in a context of human history in that there will be a great transformation of, of human society. Uh, I put it around 2045, where we'll greatly expand our capabilities by merging with, with our technology. And to be a little more specific, by the late 2020s, we'll have both the hardware and the software to create machines that are at human levels of intelligence. We've already modeled and simulated 20 different regions of the brain, and we can test those simulations, and they perform equivalently to uh, human performance of those brain regions. And the hardware will be quite capable of actually uh, being much more powerful than the human brain. So you're saying in, say, the next 25 years, right. the machines will be as smart as we are? Right. Now, we already have, by the way, uh, hundreds of examples of narrow AI, where machines are performing at human levels and generally beyond for specific tasks. And, and there are hundreds of examples. For so, example? Well, every time you send an email or connect a cell phone call, intelligent algorithms with the information, intelligent software flies and lands airplanes, guides intelligent weapon systems, automatically diagnoses electrocardiogram signals, uh, blood cell images, and I could go on. If all the intelligent software, and by intelligent software I mean software doing things that used to require human intelligence, were to stop tomorrow, our modern uh, infrastructure would grind to a halt. And that was not true 20 years ago. These projects I just mentioned were research projects 20 years ago. first industrial revolution, we extended the reach of our muscle so we can build skyscrapers and so on. And, and now we're expanding the reach of our minds. And we routinely, every day, do things that would be impossible without these brain extenders. And so we're, we're routinely expanding our intelligence with our machines today. We're going to ultimately merge with this technology, and the way we're going to do that is by getting closer and closer to it. The, the first computers were very remote. Now they're in our pockets. They'll make their way in our clothing. Uh, there are already many examples of these machines going inside our bodies and brains. If, if you have Parkinson's disease, you can have a pea-sized computer put in your brain that actually performs a function of that brain region that was destroyed by the disease. And the latest generation of this FDA-approved neural implant for Parkinson's disease allows you to download new software to your neural implant from outside the patient. Uh, this technology is not moving along at a slow pace. It's moving at an exponential pace. And one of my key points is that we're doubling the power, as measured by price performance and capacity, of information technology every year. Incredibly fast and incredibly tiny. And soon, says Ray Kurzweil, we'll have robots the size of blood cells, nanobots. So my vision of what life will be like in the late 2020s is we will have millions of these nanobots inside our bloodstream. They'll be keeping us healthy from inside, repairing DNA errors, removing debris, killing cancer cells, augmenting the immune system. They go inside our brains through the capillaries, non-invasively, Unlike today's neural implant for Parkinson's, it, doesn't, it won't require surgery. And it can then actually extend our mental functioning. One thing you could do, for example, is provide full immersion virtual reality from within the nervous system. So, 
we want to go into virtual reality, the nanobots shut down the signals coming from your real senses, replace them with the signals that your brain would be receiving if you were in the virtual environment. And then your brain feels like it's in that environment. You go to move your hand, it moves your virtual hand. Design of new virtual environments will be a new art form. Uh, but mostly it's going to actually extend human intelligence, which arguably computers do today, even if most of them are not yet inside our bodies and brains. So you must have loved the movie The Matrix. Well, The Matrix was a cool movie, and, it, uh, and that kind of virtual reality will be feasible. You know, a lot of these movies paint the future in dystopian terms, and the technology has sort of a sinister feel to it. You know, the telephone is virtual reality. You and I can be in the same virtual space, even if we're hundreds of miles away, at least as far as talking is concerned. We're going to add the other senses, the visual sense we can already do in primitive ways. But we'll actually have full immersion virtual reality involving all the senses. But it'll be like a telephone. It just won't be restricted to the auditory sense. So it's not necessarily going to be the kind of sinister thing that we see in these uh, science futurism movies. What's, what's the one thing that really grabs you as you, as you, as you look ahead? We're going to dr dramatically change what, what it means to be human, and there are already debates as to you know, what, it, what does it mean to be human. In my mind, being human includes incorporating our technology and always has. We are the human machine civilization. We're the only species that creates technology. That's really what's unique about human beings. Ray Kurzweil is a futurist, inventor, and author of The Singularity is Near, When Humans Transcend Biology. This was the first of a two-part conversation we're having with him. Next time, we'll hear how he says our new marriage with our technology will radically extend our lives. And then people say, well, you know, if you live hundreds of years, it's going to get, it would be very boring. And that's actually true. If we didn't also have your radical life expansion with the radical life extension, we're going to expand who we are physically and mostly mentally uh, by you know, putting the nanobots inside our brain and expanding our ability to think and be creative. Experts reckon there are about 70 million feral cats in the U.S. What's a feral cat? Well, these are the offspring of domestic pets that got lost or ran away, and they're blamed for the wholesale slaughter of millions of wild birds. Now, a unique program called Working Cats has found a job for feral cats dealing with other widespread pests, rats and mice. Voice for the Animals Foundation collects these wild cats, has them spayed or neutered, and then relocates them to places overrun with rodents. The Los Angeles Police Department's Southeast Division is the newest home for a colony of feral cats. LAPD Commander Kurt Albanese helped organize the working cats at several police precincts. So, uh, Commander, how bad did the problem get? Well, it got bad enough that inside the station, we actually had the mice that would run across the top of desks, and obviously employees uh, didn't want to see that. And, and so it was a, a big enough problem where it was impacting uh, the morale of the workforce, and, and we needed to do something about it. So you have some cats down there at the police station. How does this work? The cats kill the rats? They have access to an easy meal? No. Uh, the uh, cats 
their scent, the, the scent that they produce, keeps the rodents away. The, uh, the rodents are afraid uh, of the animals, and the uh, cats don't have to kill uh, the rodents at all. They stay away because of the scent. They don't want any part of the same neighborhood uh, with the cats, and they, they go on to other places. So it's like one tough gang moves in and another one moves out. Yeah, you could, uh, you could use that analogy, absolutely. So, and it's completely organic, right? There's no spraying, there's no, no. nasty chemicals? It's, uh, it's nature. It's, uh, there's no spraying, there's no chemicals, there's no traps. We feed these animals like you would feed any other cat and provide kitty litter and, and a, a little uh, housing, uh, you know, a cat crate or whatever they call it. And um, that's it. How do you condition these cats to work at the police station? Uh, and, and can you use these elsewhere, say, in uh, a school or, or someplace that also has a rodent problem? The way we condition them is they're kept in a cage, they're, they're, they're cat cage, for a couple of weeks. And that allows them or causes them to be territorial. Um, it also allows them to colonize with the other cats that are there next to them. Uh, and then when they're removed from the cages, they stay on the property. And if I had a business with a rodent problem, this would definitely be the, uh, the direction uh, I would go. I know the exterminators probably don't want to hear that, but uh, I'm convinced it's, uh, it's a very, very effective method of dealing with a difficult problem. What would be the fate of these feral cats if they didn't get jobs at the police station? Well, if they were at a uh, shelter, eventually they'd be euthanized. So this is really uh, a life-saving opportunity then. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I think you could literally say that. It is a life-saving opportunity, and it's a good deal for us and for the cats. So you'd rate this as fairly successful then? I would rate it as, uh, as highly successful. In fact, we're now expanding the program to other stations. We use them in Pacoima at Foothill Station, which is one of our older facilities and has a basement where we kept just records, uh, case files and, and whatnot. And we had uh, a lot of mice down in the basement. For whatever reason, they congregated down there. And at night, they would come up, run down the hall, and, and uh, you know, and search for food or whatnot. And so that was a problem there. We actually, in that case, we put the feral cats in the basement, which solved the problem there. Now, I got to ask you, Commander, I know these are tough guy cats, uh, tough babe cats. They don't pay any mind to you, but maybe you have a favorite anyway? <laughs> You know what? Uh, I have to tell you, I think they were, uh, because they solved the problem for us, they were all my favorite. And I knew what they were doing out there and just by their mere presence. So I was very much a proponent and uh, instructed my people, drive out of there with caution, make sure we don't hit one of these little guys. And uh, to date, we have not. Uh, they stay out of the way of the moving cars. And so they're all my favorites. Kirk Albanese is a commander with the Los Angeles Police Department. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Another cat story shocked the nation on Christmas Day. That was the news that Tatiana, a Siberian tiger, escaped her San Francisco zoo enclosure, killed one young man, and mauled two others before police shot and killed her. Now there's a debate about what went wrong. Commentator Cy Montgomery asks we consider different issues. How could this have happened? Was the tiger helped out of its enclosure? Did the men provoke the attack? Did they tease the tiger? In the aftermath of the San Francisco zoo tragedy, we're asking the wrong questions. A tiger attacked three people, and we're at a loss to understand why. That's because we completely misunderstand predators. True, if you taunt a tiger, you should prepare for natural selection to do its work. But tigers don't attack because they're angry. Tigers don't attack because they're mean. Tigers attack because they are tigers. 
Like all predators, tigers love nothing in this world more than to hunt, to stalk, to chase, to spring. A kitten playing with a ball of string is doing the same thing. For a predator, hunting is the most essential and rewarding of all pleasures. And Tatiana, she probably didn't mean to hurt anyone. That people were hurt was incidental. What Tatiana wanted, what all tigers want, what all predators want, was not to kill, not to eat, she was well fed at the zoo, but to hunt. It's what predators do. Falconers, folks who hunt with the predatory birds, know all about this. In the elaborate lexicon of falconry, there's a word that addresses this instinctive hunting desire. Yarrick. At the New Hampshire School of Falconry, my instructor, Nancy Cowan, said Yarrick doesn't have a precise definition. It might come from the Persian word for power or strength, or from the Turkic for the right heat for tempering metal. But falconers know what it means and what you do about it. Yarrick is the often explosive buildup of hunting drive. The falconer ignores it at his peril. Otherwise, your bird might fly at your face with her talons. Not that she's hungry or angry. She's frustrated, deprived of her chance to chase. Most American zoos won't let their tigers chase live prey. The public doesn't want to see that or even know about it. But, and here's the odd thing, the public wants to see tigers. We want to admire these magnificent predators, as long as the predators are harmless, as long as they don't kill anything. But then, are we really seeing a predator? Can we hope to understand a predator that never chases prey? Do we have the right to keep tigers in captivity? Is there a way to keep a captive tiger psychologically whole? Can we honor their yarrick? These are the questions we should be asking, and we should answer them before another Tatiana pays with her life for the sin of being a tiger. Author Cy Montgomery works with wild tigers in India. Her book about her experiences is called Spell of the Tiger, The Man-Eaters of Sundabans. On the next Living on Earth, a high-speed wireless network helps environmental scientists gather remote field information in a way they never could before. There's two things that are happening. You're getting the data in real time so you can see if the sensor fails or if your data is, is good. And you can also have many more sensors in the field. Wireless science, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in the company of penguins. These emperor penguins, made famous by the movie March of the Penguins, are the largest of all of these tuxedo-clad birds. They spend their lives on the Antarctic ice and search for food in the ocean waters. Douglas Quinn braved the cold and recorded their calls for the CD Antarctica, produced by wildsanctuary.com.
Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Emily Taylor, and Jeff Young, with help from Jennifer Basler and Sarah Calkins. Our interns are Alexandra Gutierrez and Mitra Taj. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing, PaxWorld, for tomorrow. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.